And we are in Luke chapter 4 this morning, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. We're looking at the magnificence of Christ in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're journeying through that and picking the times in those particular accounts chronologically where I feel like we see the magnificence of Christ. We won't get every part of the Gospels, but we will get the parts where Christ seems to be more magnificent and we see his glory and it is about the incarnation i've already said that to you but this is this is really revolutionized how i read the gospels as i've come to get a greater appreciation of jesus being fully man certainly fully god we never want to leave that off But I think we can easier see that than we see the fully man sometimes. They're both true. And we've been walking through it. Last week we looked at the baptism of Christ. Let me just share the top points of that again. And you can listen online if you want to get the rest. But Jesus, when he came to John, John the Baptist, John backed away. He said, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. What do we get from that? The understanding that John knew Jesus was sinless. He didn't have any sin to be repenting of. And it was a baptism of repentance. He, John, was the one who needed to repent. You see, for us, as we talked about, the Christian life, rejoicing and repenting. John had some repenting to do. He knew it. You baptize me, Jesus. I don't baptize you. You're sinless. So if you think it was about Jesus having his sin washed away, as some would want to say, it's not. He said it was about fulfilling all righteousness, but I think what he meant there was that he was affirming and identifying with the fact that this baptism was about turning away from sin is what Jesus' mission was, to turn away perfectly. You see, that's where he was headed. He would always succeed in turning away from sin And always succeed in trusting the Father. That's what he was identifying with. That's what he was saying is good and right to do. And so he was baptized. We also saw that the Trinity was present in that. 
God the Father who said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The dove representing the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus at his baptism. And Jesus, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all together. Whenever you see that in Scripture, you need to pay attention. God has something especially to tell us and to show us. And the writer wants to bring it home in those cases. So the baptism was incredibly significant because all the members of the Trinity were there. And I hope you're reading Scripture that way. One of the things, if Scripture has gotten to be old hat to you, maybe, or you think I can't, I I just can't get anything out of it, what I would encourage you to do is read the Gospels during this time. And when you read the Gospels, ask these questions, this question, which I hope leads to others. But who is it talking about? Is it talking about the Father here when it talks about God? Or is it talking about Jesus, second person of the Trinity? Or is it talking about the Holy Spirit? Read it that way. Ask that question. What member of the Trinity is it talking about in this particular section of the Gospel? And let other questions flow from that. Good questions. And I said, good questions are coming. That's exciting. The third thing that I see here in this is that Jesus was praying. And this was good for me. It's confirmation to me of some of the things that have been coming. And that's one of the reasons why I want us to go through the Gospels. I said to somebody a couple of weeks ago in one of the questions, the questions are good. But I have to dig when they come sometimes. I'm launching into the Gospels and and going through the Gospels with you in process to some degree as we walk through this. And part of that process is to see if what I have been reading and what I have been talking about is true. That Jesus lived fully as a man and did not, in his resistance of sin, rely upon his own deity. In other words, he resisted sin perfectly, not by pulling the trump card out of his pocket, if you will, of deity, of being God, but in the same way we resist, by dependence upon the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Always doing what he saw the Father doing, taking his cues from the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's another question that rises in my mind and which other people want to say. They want to say that everything Jesus did, even his miracles were done by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, they might be right. One of the processes in this journey is for me to ask that question. That's the question I'm asking. That's the question when I read the Gospels. It seems to me there might have been times when Jesus' divinity broke through in the issue of miracles. In other words, when he, when he performed a miracle, was he using his own divinity, his own God, God head position of the second person of the Trinity? Or was he, in fact, even in those cases, as he walked in the incarnation, relying just on the Holy Spirit? I don't know the answer to that fully. And maybe I won't know it at the end. But what I will say with resolve is that I believe that Jesus resisted sin by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by the fact He was God and let His divinity break in. In fact, this passage in the temptation of Jesus reaffirms that to me. In fact, I think one of the temptations will come to this that Jesus had. The overarching temptation in this temptation account is that very temptation. To pull out the trump card. To pull out his divinity in the midst of the temptation. 
We'll come to that in a, in a little bit, I hope, if we get there. But what I want you to see now, and I reiterate from last week because it is important, I think. Look at the account in Luke when it recounts what Jesus was doing there as he experienced the coming of the Holy Spirit upon him in verse 21 of chapter 3. This is last week's account in the, in the baptism account. It says, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was what? Remember we pulled it out last week? He was praying. So the question we, we said, we had a number of questions last week as we came to the Lord's table. What's he praying about? What's he praying about? Well, right after he prays, the heavens opened. And what happened? The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With, with you, I am well pleased. But it says a dove. Right after he prayed, Luke says he prayed. A dove, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Well, that might give some indication of what he might have been praying about. Was he praying for power and enablement? I think it might lend itself to that interpretation. But, but to bolster that, I had you go to Luke chapter eleven thirteen. Here a little later in Luke's account, Luke talked much about Jesus' prayer life. Often he talks about Jesus pulling himself away to pray or that Jesus prayed. Here is another example of that, talking about prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And if you go down in that account a ways into about verse 13, look at what it says. Jesus is speaking. It says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Okay. Contact good gifts to your children. In other words, he's going to tell God's children what the good gifts that the father is willing to give them are. And here's what it says. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to His children? It's important to understand. It's in that context of good gifts to children. God the Father gives good gifts to His children. And the definition of being a children or a child is what? Romans 8. If you have not the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. So here it says that the Father, if we pray, is willing to give us a gift. And that gift is the Holy Spirit, which all believers already have if they're a believer. So what does that mean? Jesus, I think, was praying for the Holy Spirit to come because he didn't have the Holy Spirit. No. Children have the Holy Spirit. Children of God have it or they're not children. But he still says, if we ask, he will give us the Holy Spirit. How do we answer that? Are there two Holy Spirits? Is the Holy Spirit somehow divided? No. Neither one of those answers are right. The Holy Spirit is infinite. God always has more to give. You never exhaust God. Jesus was fully man. And in that dimension, as He lived in that dimension, in the incarnation, the Holy Spirit resided in Him. But He needed more. 
of the infinite supply the Holy Spirit had to give. That's what happened here. Is that not the same thing that we're admonished to ask for? The Holy Spirit to come and fill us? Be not drunk with wine, but be what? Be filled with the Spirit. Do you not have the Spirit if you're praying to be filled with the Spirit? I don't know how to answer that. Do you not have the Spirit if you're asked to be filled with the Spirit? The answer would be, yes, you have it. I don't know how you say that. Yes, you have it. So you can continue to ask because it's an infinite supply. The whole God is never exhaustible. That's how we are to live. This morning, you had a ministry in the church if you had one today. Even if you didn't, you had a ministry. If you didn't have an official office, you had a ministry this morning. You came together. I hope you prayed, Lord, empower me as I come this morning. Empower me to be an instrument of encouragement and light and strength to those that I will meet. Or if you're a Sunday school teacher, did you pray this morning? God, give me power and strength to minister your grace to these children. Or whatever ministry you had. Do we do that? Ought we to do that? If Jesus had to do it, I think we ought to do it. Daily. Do you wake up in the morning with the cry on your heart, God help me? And how does God help us? How does the Father help us? But by the Holy Spirit. Pray. Learn to pray. God, strengthen me. God, empower me. Help me. Help me to live by your Spirit. Jesus knew the secret of that. He prayed. I think he prayed. And God answered in that passage. Now today, chapter 4. First a question as we look at the account. What question might we ask? Because we ended what we read here last week. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And then we skipped some verses and we came to chapter 4 and verse 1 this morning. We didn't read the genealogy. Why? Because it was too difficult for Pastor Jason to pronounce all the names? That wasn't the main reason. I wouldn't want to read them all. Public. Why? Why? Why did... The the question is, why is it there? I mean, why do we go from the baptism of Jesus to the temptation of Jesus and Luke decides to drop a genealogy in the middle of that? He didn't just do it because he needed to fill space on the page. There was a reason. There's a flow of thought in what Luke does. There's a reason why Luke puts it there. You see, when we start to look at Scripture and we start to ask those questions, then we have to go and find out why. Why is it there? And then, as we start to ask that question, it leads to another observation as you look at it. Because when you ask the question, then you need to look at it. And what you begin to find here is this genealogy is different than the other gospel writer. This genealogy goes farther back. Other genealogy goes to Abraham. 
Why does this one go all the way back to Adam? Why does Luke insert a genealogy, take us all the way back to Adam in that genealogy? Let me suggest an answer in the next few minutes. I think it's because of the significance of Adam. It goes back to how we began this service this morning. It goes back to the fact that the Bible talks about two Adams. The first Adam, named Adam. The second Adam, named Jesus Christ. The first Adam, our representative, was not confirmed in righteousness. That's what, that's what the theologians would say. The first Adam was tempted. The first Adam failed in the temptation. He sinned. And because he sinned, that sin was imputed to the entire human race. To all of us. That's what original sin is. That's what it means. Sin of Adam is imputed to all of us. Remember we used that word imputation when I talked about Christ's righteousness being dressed in it. It's imputed to us. It resides outside of us in the sense. And it's given to us. Well, the same way with Adam. Adam sinned. He was our representative. His sin is imputed to us. And we've said this before, but Adam was our representative. He was the chosen representative. God, who does everything perfectly, chose the best representative. If we have an objection to say, I'll, I'll take care of myself, I'll represent myself, thank you. Let me say to you, if you had represented yourself, you would have failed too. God picked the very best representative. And that representative sinned. And his sin was imputed to us. Now, be careful too quickly to throw out imputation, as we've said before, because if you throw it out on this side, when I start to talk about the second Adam, you've got to throw it out there. You can't take it over here in having the imputation of Christ's righteousness to you if you don't take it on the front half of having sin imputed to you. So be careful about saying, I'll represent myself, thank you. I don't want to deal with imputation. That's the theological setting. The first Adam fails. Sin enters the human race. And by the way, um, you've also sinned yourself. Not only was original sin did it come to you, but you've also sinned. That's, that's what we get from Adam. That's why I think he goes back to Adam. Because he's going to tell us and show us the journey of another Adam. The God-man, Jesus Christ. You see, this, you see the setting being set? The first Adam, but now in chapter 4 and verse 1, the second Adam comes on the scene to really launch out, really, into his ministry. For 30 years, he'd been... In obscurity, for the most part, we know a little bit of that. But now, now the setting is set. And Jesus comes to the temptation. I think even for Jesus, the temptation, and we'll read this a bit later from a commentary, even for Jesus, he was, he was seeing a bit of the future, of what it was going to be like, what these next three years were going to entail. Really, he started to see the battle setting itself up here in the temptation. 
account. Now, let me, let me lay some groundwork. I've said first Adam, second Adam. Is that scriptural or is that something we made up? Two references. First of all, turn to Matthew, or excuse me, Romans chapter 5, 17. We read this a few weeks ago, but I want you to see it. Romans chapter 5 and verse 17. Especially. This is the passage that appeared on the screen this morning. But the whole broader account you want to, to read about. It, it's titled in my ESV Bible, Bible beginning at verse 12, um, The Death in Adam, the Life in Christ. First Adam, second Adam is what's set up here. But in verse 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Imputation on both sides. You see it there? First Adam, second Adam. By the way, one of the things that I've, I've come to say here, and you've heard it before, but it, it gives emphasis to this, and I say it for those who want to see a continuity in Scripture. That's where my heart resonates. That's why I repeat it. You can, you can today say that there are many roads that lead to heaven. You can say, if all you need to do is get on one of those roads and be sincere. You can believe that. I can't stop you from believing that. And the world is pounding it into you. But you just can't call it Christianity. There is no third Adam. There is the first Adam who failed. There is the second Adam, Christ, who succeeded. And there is no third Adam. There is no third road. That's what Scripture teaches. That's what Christianity teaches. Now you can distort that, and you can twist that, and you can do all kinds of things you want to the virgin birth and all that kind of stuff and distort the the absolute perfection of Christ and the fact that He did provide a righteousness and people do that. But if you just take the text, the first Adam, sin came. The second Adam, righteousness comes. And there's no third Adam. So I say that for the sake of young people and old alike. Don't buy that lie. You, You can believe it in one sense, but you just can't call it Christianity. That's where the damage comes in. The damage does not come in in living in a pluralistic society that can believe that there are multitudes of roads that get to heaven. Where the real damage comes in is when you say Christianity teaches that. Because it does not teach that. It does not. First Adam, second Adam. It's incredibly important to see this this morning. But here it says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now turn to 1 Corinthians 15.22 if you want to. And it says there, in that particular Section, this verse, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Again, first Adam, second Adam, those two things. That's what's being set up now in this genealogy being dropped in here before the temptation. Jesus is really starting to begin that trek of whether or not he will be confirmed in righteousness. Remember I said that? First Adam was tested. He was not confirmed in righteousness. He didn't, he didn't fight the temptation and succeed. He, he came to the temptation. He failed. He sinned. There was no confirmation in righteousness. All the human race was in peril. 
And then the second Adam comes. Christ. And the stage is set again, just as it was set in the garden. Will he succeed or will he fail? And that's what we jump into now in chapter 4 and verse 1. Jesus, it says here interestingly, look what it says in verse 1. Full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan from his baptism and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Jesus prayed. What did he pray for? For power, strength, enablement. What did God do? He gave good gifts to his son, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the, from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus resisted here, I believe, in this account in chapter 4 and verse 1, the same way we're called to resist by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians. Fully man. Let me read something to you because I've, I've referenced a book, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by Bruce Ware. If only one man is saying something, beware. If you start to read something and you say, I've never read this anyplace else, beware. Now, it may mean that you just haven't read enough. You haven't read broad enough and somebody else is saying you're just not hearing it. If you get a new idea and think you're the person who God gave that new idea to and nobody else has ever thought of it before, be very beware. There are not new things under the sun in matters of faith. I just don't think that's the case. It's been around long enough that somebody someplace better have, have seen the same thing or you better be really careful. You'll get out on a limb and you'll get it cut off. But here, listen to what another Kent Yu says in his book on the Gospel of Luke. He pastored Wheaton Church for a number of years. And here's what he writes. Let me read it to you. I'm picking up in the middle of this a bit, so, so bear with me as you listen. In actuality, when he became human, talking of Jesus, he placed the exercise of his divine knowledge and power under the discretion of God the Father. So we understand that his human mind progressively acquired a divine awareness as his Father willed it. Jesus implicitly expressed this when he said, I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And again, I do nothing on my own. For Jesus' words. Now remember the book that where that came across my path a number of years ago that really started me down this trek to think more fully about the incarnation was Jesus didn't lie in the manger, and I'm paraphrasing, and look up and contemplating the heavens that he had created as a baby. He, he didn't do that. He was fully man. A baby doesn't do that. It's fully human. His divine attributes, as another has said, beyond the two that I've just quoted, he somehow bracketed his divinity in such a way that he was able to live fully as a man. Is that mysterious? Is that bigger than we can fully get our mind around? Yes. But I think Scripture affirms it again and again. I think it affirms it in this passage that we're reading this morning. But let me read on. 
It says, at his temptation, Jesus fully knew he was the son of God. But he withstood the onslaughts of Satan as a real man, deriving his power to resist by depending upon God's strength, uh, upon God for strength. Now, remember what I said at age 12? Remember as we walked through this? It was beginning, it seems, to, to, to dawn upon Jesus. The dots were getting connected as he stayed back in the temple. And when his mother came to him and said, your father and I have been looking for you, he said, he said, not speaking of Joseph, but he said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And at that point, we said Jesus was connecting the dots. He knew scripture. He certainly had been told by his mother about the virgin birth and the dots were coming to be connected. And here, I think at his baptism, the full connections probably were connected. Jesus knew. He knew where he was headed. He knew his destiny. And he launches out in it in chapter 4 and verse 1. That's what he means there. And he did it not by, again, relying upon his deity, but depending upon God for strength through the Holy Spirit. The temptations were real, and Jesus withstood them as a real man who was like us in every way. Significantly, the author of Hebrews concludes, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. His help to us comes from the reality of the incarnation, God becoming man. <clears throat> the next essential to have kept in mind is that Jesus' temptation was clearly arranged by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of concluding a two-part final preparation for Jesus' public ministry. The first part was the positive, Jesus' baptism, at which the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At his baptism, Jesus' soul danced with joy and anticipation. The second purpose was negative, Jesus' temptation, during which he was made aware of the perils and the errors he had to resist. As Frederick Goddard said, the temptation was the last act of his moral education. It gave him an insight into all the ways in which his messianic work could be easily marred. I hope you tremble when you hear that. The temptation was the last act of his moral education. It gave him an insight into all the ways in which his messianic work could be easily marred. Do you see the drama? First Adam is not confirmed in righteousness. Second Adam comes on the scene. Will he or will he not be confirmed in righteousness? He easily could have marred it had he not, had he not depended on the power of the Holy Spirit and his leading. His temptation was, to counterpart, was the counterpart to his baptism. Heaven opened at one and hell yawned at the other. And both prepared Jesus to live as the victorious son. The final essential fact we must note if we are to understand the great temptation is that the spirit led Jesus into the desert and wilderness where he spent 40 days. An obvious parallel with Israel's 40 year sojourn during which, unlike Jesus, God's people repeatedly failed God. 
Evidently, Jesus had reflected long and hard on their wilderness failures because he answered Satan's temptations with three successive references to a brief section of Deuteronomy that make reference to Israel's tests and failures. These quotations from Deuteronomy hold the key to understanding Jesus' three temptations and the victory over them. I don't know how to totally express this, but... You see what I mean back there when I said at age 12, the dots were starting to get connected for Jesus. He knew Scripture. He knew the Old Testament. He studied the Old Testament as a child. He was trained in it by his mother and father. He heard the stories that Mary shared. He connected it to the virgin birth, predicted in the Old Testament for the Messiah. He read Deuteronomy here. He knew Deuteronomy. He comes to the point of temptation. He does it in the power of the Spirit and resists by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God. We see that. In in all of these cases, he brings Scripture to bear upon Satan's lies. Satan, the first time, doesn't use Scripture. Jesus turns the tables, uses Scripture. The next time's Satan uses scriptures, and Jesus still turns it on its head. It's an amazing account. And how easily we neglect this book. Are you struggling with sin? Well, there's a a battle that will go on. It won't solve it all. But if you're not in this book, it's worse. If you're not fighting with the weapons, the sword of the Spirit, if you're not fighting with what He gave us. But let me go on. Let me look at the essence of this temptation. This is what's what's amazing. We're going to leave it here and then close. But the essence of the temptation, there were three things, and we, we may open these up a little later, but I'm not so interested in the, the essence of each individual temptation. What I want you to get is the bigger picture of, of that temptation. What was... What was Satan trying to do? I think he came at Jesus from three different angles. But in all of those cases, he was trying to do the same thing. Now, maybe he used a different thing to tempt with. But in essence, he wanted one thing to happen. This is what is amazing to me when you start to see it. You see, again, it was a real temptation. He was fully man. Don't minimize that. It was real temptation. He didn't have a card in his pocket to pull out. He, he, he did have it. He didn't use it. He could have used it. And that is his deity. He's God. He bracketed it. For a better way to say it, he bracketed it. He somehow bracketed his deity in a way that he could live fully as a man and, and let that stretch your mind. It, 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 but that's what it says can't fully understand that. But we need to know he did it fully as a man. Otherwise, he was not tempted in every way as we are. It, it does damage to Scripture. So I'm just going to stand on Scripture. And places where I can't put it all in my head, I'm just going to leave it. As one said, person said, better your mind be broken than the Word of God be broken. Think about that. When there's stuff you can't fully understand. Better your mind get broken than the Word of God get broken. But the essence of the temptation 
the essence of the temptation, I think, and you think about it this week, the essence of the temptation for Jesus is this. The pressure comes. Will he be confirmed in righteousness or will it get marred? He's hungry. He's hungry. Forty days. Satan says, turn these stones into bread. Can he do it? Yeah. He's God. He's fully God. He never was not fully God. All he has to do is reach into his back pocket and pull it out and, and be God. God can do anything. God can turn stones into bread. He's hungry enough to want to do it. But he doesn't. The essence of the temptation is he doesn't. Do you see how it drives home to me? He was fully man. And the very temptation he was tempted in was to exercise his deity. Now, why would that have been wrong? You see how subtle Satan is? Why would it be wrong for God to be God? He's fully God. Remember we said, the Trinity, everything the Father possesses, the Son possesses, and everything the Son possesses, the Holy Spirit possesses, and everything the Holy Spirit possesses, the Father. They're, they're all equal. You see one, you see the other. The difference is the roles that they play within the Godhead. One God, three persons. It's the role. What was wrong about it? It wasn't His role. His role was to look to the Father. And only do what he sees the Father doing. To only do the will of the Father. And what was the will of the Father? The will of the Father was that the Son would be crushed for us. This would have usurped it. If he pulled out his deity, if he turned the stones into bread, he goes outside the will of the Father. You see the temptation? The essence of the temptation. Essence of the temptation. The thing that would mar the temptation. The thing that would mar the second Adam just like it marred the first Adam. Disobedience. Disobedience to the will of the Father whom Jesus looked to. We've, we've talked about that. You have to go back to messages and get that. That's scriptural. I only do what I see the Father doing. The roles of the Trinity. So let me read this and then we'll close this morning. Christ had come to do the will of the Father and nothing else. Christ was tempted to provide for His material needs apart from the will of the Father and furthermore to go outside the natural order to meet His needs to momentarily suppress living like a real man. To momentarily suppress living as fully man. But you see what it was going to take to be the second Adam? To be confirmed in righteousness was to not do that. And Jesus succeeded. It's not unlike our temptation, is it? He was tempted in every way. So how, how is that like our temptation? 
How is that like when temptation comes upon us in the heat of a battle? I mean, we can't pull out. We're not tempted to pull out our deity because we're not God. The essence of the temptation is the same. Are we going to trust the Father and His supply and His resources to not sin? Or are we going to trust our own resources to not sin? You see, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Listen to this, and then we're going to sing together. Jesus recognized that his absolute mission was one of absolute submission to the will of the Father, nothing less, nothing more. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Real man, fully man, full of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Word of God. Is that what we're to do? We can live fully as a as a man. We don't have any choice. We don't have any deity to pull out. Full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Word of God. The second Adam jumps in the trenches with us. The first Adam was directly created. The second Adam by virgin birth. The first Adam could eat any of the trees except one. The second Adam was hungry, desperately hungry. The first Adam lived in paradise. The second Adam was tested in the desert. The first Adam was tempted and he failed. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeded. Let's stand and rejoice. Yeah.
question is, which Adam represents you? Adam number one or Adam number two? It's one or the other. There's no third Adam. Father, I pray that we will see the glory of your Son. The one who came to live fully as a man. To resist temptation. That we might live. That we might have a righteousness. Not our own. But that comes from Him. Oh Lord, I pray. I pray right now that that eyes have been opened to to such a degree this morning in some that they would just say Lord Jesus dress me in your righteousness I acknowledge my sin and I repent of it and I need a righteousness that I can't produce myself and put on those robes put them on me right now that I might stand your righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed this morning.